All right. Welcome to another episode of NBA's Unplugged. I'm your host, John Ford. If uh, my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's because last night I was singing in the car to Katy Perry's Firework. Please forgive me. Uh, I'm here with our guest, Alexander Buckholz. Did I do it right? You did it. You did it correctly. Hey, John, it's Excellent. good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, we were talking a little bit before the show about the correct pronunciation of your name, which apparently is not as easy as it seems. No, it's not as easy as it seems. There's there's a, a very tricky double H in the middle of it that uh, people I've known for my entire life still seem to get tripped up on. Yeah. Uh, well, Alex, do you prefer Alex or Alexander? Uh, Alex is fine. Alex. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Let's get to know you a little bit. Let's start with where you're from. Yeah. So, hey, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so I am born and raised in, in Philadelphia. Um, Grew there my entire life, went to high school there, uh, loved growing up in Philadelphia, got really involved in the music scene there. It's a great place to, to grow up and, and play music and ended up moving to New York City for college. I went to- uh, you, were, to you, were, you were not sent to live in Bel Air. <laughs> I was not, no, I was not sent to live in Bel Air. I uh, voluntarily chose to move to New York for college. Um, which was awesome. New York, if you're, you know, if people from, are from the East Coast, it's it's not too far from Philly, but at the same time, it's just so culturally different. Um, so I went to NYU for my undergrad. How, how old were you when you moved to New York? Uh, oh, man, uh, 18. Okay. So it was to start college, basically. Yeah, just to start college. And, and, and you know, New York is so close to Philly. I'd spent some time there uh, growing up, but only as a tourist. Before we go to your time in New York, what part of Philadelphia did you grow up in? Because Philly yeah. itself is a huge place. Were you in the city? Were you in one of the suburban counties? Sure, sure. So, I, so Philly's a funny place because the city itself is huge and it also encompasses very suburban areas. So I grew up in a part of the city called uh, Chestnut Hill, which is technically in Philadelphia, but on the very, very outskirts of the city, the city's limits. So I grew up with yard and dogs, um, but still great access to great restaurants, culture, all the best parts of the city. Excellent. And uh, did you have, uh, hold on, I got stuck here. I love the Italian food in, in Philadelphia. Did you get a pretty good, pretty good dose of that growing up? <laughs> yeah, I did. Philadelphia has a pretty like unassumingly excellent uh, culinary scene. So growing up there, and I was always interested in food and restaurants. It was a really fun place to uh, to grow up. You know, we have like a pretty um, interesting Italian portion of Philadelphia where we have the Italian market. I'm sure you've seen the Rocky movies where he runs to the Italian market. That is like still how it looks in 2022. It's still as old school as that. Um, and it's a really fun place to, to spend some time. So then you go to another Italian food mecca in New York City. Um, <laughs> Italian food is going to be a theme of this podcast, isn't it? Because you ended it up- is. It, it seems it's guided most of my yeah, decisions. Yeah. And I think that's a reasonable basis to make important life decisions. Um, <laughs> so you go to NYU and you majored in English. I did. I, I went. Yeah, I went to NYU, studied English and American literature. Um, I wrote a thesis on, on British romantic poetry. 
and they came to business school, man. It makes perfect sense, right? It makes total sense. Tell me about English poetry, a subject I know truly nothing about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I came into it, but I, I just found this love for, for poetry and writing uh, and literature when I was in high school, followed it through uh, to college. I had a brief stint as a music major at NYU, and that was not the right fit for me. So came back to, to, to studying literature. I don't know, man, I, I really gravitated towards that, that type of discussion, that, that level of intellectual discourse, that kind of intellectual rigor that comes from, from that kind of study. Um, as far as like British Romantic poetry goes, there's a really fascinating overlap between poetry and, 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 and how the, the art form looks at nature. And to my like, you know, 19, 20, 20 year old, 21 year old brain, that was really, really interesting. So I ended up doing most of my scholarship on how romantic poets looked at nature and what we can learn from that. Do you have any poets that you can recommend to our classmates as a way to sort of get them, get them going in their English poetry studies? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, William Wordsworth is where I'd start. He's the poet on, 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 on whom I wrote my, my thesis uh, and probably the most famous romantic poet. Pretty accessible. Do you have a, a sampling you wanna pull up and, and see if we can read it? Oh God, you something, check. Something, yeah, something short that maybe you can sort of just give our listeners a little sample. Oh my goodness. All right, so you, you have, uh, I paused the recording and you, went over and grabbed a William Wordsworth book. You had it right there at the ready. That's, yeah. the, that's the depth of the love you have for this poet. Yeah, you know what? I have about like 10 copies of, these, of this exact book somewhere on my bookshelves. And as you can see, but our listeners probably can't, I have these, uh, I have this like obsessive compulsive issue with collecting books. And I'm running out of space to put them all. I have three bookshelves that are full. I have like cabinets that are full. My coffee table's covered in books. And I can't seem to stop buying books. So I have the same problem. I actually, um, I, I paid off my Amazon credit card last night and it was an uncomfortable shock to realize how many books I had bought over the previous month. Yeah, you know, and, and the crazy thing is like, I don't even read them all. Like I, I acquire them at such a rate that I can't keep up with, with reading them because I, you know, I go to school full time. So I have like piles of books growing up around me. Um, Wait till second year, you'll get to do plenty of reading to catch up. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right, man, here we go. So I've, I've flipped through this. So in the effort of time, I'm going to read just a few short lines of, of a poem that is perhaps the most famous so I'm reading from a collection called Lyrical Ballads, which is a, uh, the piece, the book on which I wrote my thesis and the most of my scholarship. And the poem is called Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, uh, like late 18th century. So here's a few lines. Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains and of all that we behold from this green earth of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half creates and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense. So I think what was, was it's, it's a fantastic, I mean, this, this poem goes on for, I don't know, 
15, no, not 15, five more pages. Um, I think what's so fascinating is this connection of like, this connection of nature to the self and this idea of truth in nature. Um, this idea of looking around us to find what really matters to us and look to guidance, look, look for some guidance around us in the natural world, which I think is a really important lesson that we often forget, especially in business school. Do you spend a lot of time in nature? Are you, you know, an outdoorsy I, guy? Oh, no, not even close. Could you imagine me? Man? No, no, I'm from the city. Um, and you're, you're just into the poems, not the actual nature. <laughs> Look, I, I like a good, I like I, a good hike, but I'm not, I'm not camping for weeks in the woods, yeah. no. It's like, I like the idea of nature. Oh, yeah, I like the, I I like like the intellectual construct of nature, sure. <laughs> good, some good landscape photography does it for me. <laughs> Yeah. You know, to, to that point, there's a check uh, into my five-star hotel, say hi to the concierge and then look at landscape photography. That's yeah. Like you know, man, I, I'm totally here for that. I'm totally here for that. Uh, no, but before we move on, I think there's a, an important, like, I don't know that nature needs to be the natural world it needs to be like the woods or mountains or, or seas and in, in like a capital R romantic poetry sense it does, but the way I read this, we can look around ourselves and just find inspiration from wherever we are. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So English poetry, a great passion. And of course, that mm. naturally that naturally leads to business school, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But first, I'm going to hype the Vegas trip again. We're doing another promo for the Vegas trip because people still, I want you to sign up. Not everybody has signed up. We're staying at Harris. There's going to be many fun activities. We're going to have a Red Rock Canyon hike, a poker tournament at Bally's, an NFL draft watch party. We got a little special something on the podcast for you about drafts. Just, just, a, little, just a little warning that it's a special episode about drafts is coming. Uh, and the Skyfall Bar at Mandalay for a, a fancy bar evening, for those of you who are so inclined. And there's an opportunity to sign up uh, for a cabana. Just get in the disorientation WhatsApp, and Rosie is putting together a disorientation cabana. Uh, get in as soon as you can because the prices keep going up as we get closer to it and they're looking at uh, getting a cabana. Alesso is playing that day at the pool that they've picked. I forget which pool it is, but it should be a lot of fun if you're into that sort of thing. All right, so fun questions. Then we'll talk about the decision to go to business school. What's the worst movie you've ever seen? Uh, the Great Gatsby remake with Leonardo DiCaprio. I have not seen it. I, I really like Baz Luhrmann. I loved his Romeo and Juliet. I think it's a visually stunning movie. I have heard very bad things about his Great Gatsby remake. Yeah, it's kind of a disgrace. Wow, a disgrace. It's that bad. It's that bad. It's now I'm biased, right? Because I read books all day long. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the novel's the greatest work of American writing. Uh, and this is perhaps the worst work of American cinema. So I guess, oh, hey, you know what? We're, uh, we have both ends of the spectrum here, right? Wow. All right. I guess stay away from that one. Or <laughs> if you like, if you like, is it a bad movie that's boring or is it a movie that someone could watch if they like bad movies that are theatrically bad? Oh, interesting. Probably the latter. Okay. So this is more bad like face-off rather than bad like watching paint dry or is it not even as- Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's, it's bad and like a cringe-worthy- 
like who let this come out into the public kind of way, right? It's not, yeah. you're certainly like engaged by it because you're like, what is going on here? Um, but it's, yeah, it's hard to watch, man. You, you want to look away, but you can't, right? Got it. Um, music, you are a music aficionado. So this would be an interesting question for you. What's a kind of music that you're embarrassed that you like? Oh man, embarrassed that I like. So here's a funny story. So I, uh, I grew up playing music um, and I was actually playing punk bands growing up, uh, which is so funny, right? Cause I don't, I don't, I don't have that vibe at all, but I, uh, I still listen to like classic uh, Amer early American punk music okay. uh, all the time. I'm not embarrassed by that, but it's certainly like maybe a little, little under the surface. Um, beyond that, I primarily listen to, to jazz, listen to a lot of jazz. Um, so people who listen to jazz have a certain reputation. Do you feel like that is a fair reputation? What is the reputation? That it's a little bit like, the joke is always they don't really like jazz. They just want to be the kind of person who would like jazz and it's a way of signaling sophistication. Do you feel like uh, there are people uh, who do that a little bit? Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, like with, like with everything, right? There's people who don't really, um, believe in something wholeheartedly, but wonderful form that they do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, dude, I'm not like deep in the jazz scene. I, I enjoy listening to jazz and going to see live jazz. Um, but maybe I'm performing, who knows? Do you have thoughts on La La Land where jazz plays a substantial role in the movie? You know what? I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen it. It's good. I would, I would recommend taking a look at it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that from a lot of people. It's a good, right. it's a good movie. It's a fun movie. All right. You mentioned you have no time to read, but what is the last book you read that is not for school? The last book I read that is not for school. So, okay. So let, let me, let me qualify this. So, so by MBA standards, I, I probably read more than, than the average MBA student, just because I'm so obsessive with, with books. Um, the last book I read, I, I'm reading Shakespeare's entire collected works, like from start to finish right now. So I recently reread um, uh, The Comedy of Errors, which is a really wonderful, hilarious play. Um, but book-wise, I am halfway through a book called Dirt, which is written by Bill Buford. Bill Buford was, is, is a fantastic author, longtime editor of The New Yorker. Um, and the book is all about how he quit his job to move to France to learn how to cook. And it's such a like a wonderful, whimsical, enjoyable read, and the writing is just so brilliant. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite place you've been? We're about to talk about how you've been to a lot of places. So, my favorite place I've been in the world. Yeah, outside Los Angeles, and outside Philly and New York because you've you've lived there for so long. Sure. Oh man, that's a hard question. I've been fortunate enough to both per personally and professionally travel quite extensively. Um, Moscow. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. why Moscow? I was in Moscow in 20 It's gonna be a while before you go back, I think. Yeah, you know, and so I'm really thankful that I got there. Um, I was there in 2018. Uh, I had just signed with Four Seasons, which we'll get into later in the podcast. Um, so I was spending time at the Four Seasons Hotel there. Um, I, dude, I had no idea what to expect. I'm also like an architecture nerd and kind of a, like an art history nerd. So 
being in in Moscow and just standing and gawking at these gorgeous buildings and the food scene is so sophisticated, fantastic, and the wines are excellent. I just, it, in my complete uh, American ignorance, had no idea that this level of just like beauty and, and sophistication and, and gastronomy existed in Moscow and my mind was blown. I would go back in a heartbeat if I could. It's interesting that you mentioned the food scene being so sophisticated because I think the American perception of Russian food is it's like, borscht and bread lines. Yeah, you know, I think the American perception of any non-American food, with the exception of Italian and French food, is is completely miseducated. And we can get more into this uh, later on as I yeah. talk about where else I've lived. But one of my like greatest goals in life is to ensure that we all have a more robust and accurate understanding of the world and the beauty around us. Yeah, uh, it does give me a chance to un to roll out one of my favorite jokes about the Soviet Union, which is, uh, and it used to be, there was a cottage industry of jokes about the Soviet Union, but the joke is two guys were standing in a line waiting for bread and they'd been there for like an hour and a half. And one of the guys decides to leave and he says to his friend, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go over to the Kremlin and I'm gonna go tell Gorbachev what a son of a bitch he is, what a failure he is, give him a piece of my mind. The, his friend goes, yeah, sure, I'll see you in a couple minutes. And the guy comes back about 20 minutes later. His friend says, how'd it go with Gorbachev? And the guy says, I don't know, that line's longer than this one, so I came back. <laughs> oh, man. Um, all right, what's the place that you want to go that you haven't been yet? Washington State. It's beautiful. When you get yeah. up there, it's beautiful. Yeah, you know, I, I was on the phone with a, uh, with a friend the other day who's in Napa, and he said, man, you have to get to Washington. It's the next, like, big wine region in the U.S., but, like, no one knows that yet. So I'd like to get up there, drink some of those wines while they're still <laughs> really affordable. Um, and I've, I've heard it's just a gorgeous place to spend some time. Yeah. Speaking of wine, uh, you're a little bit of an expert in wine, right? Oh, no, no, I pretend to be, but. Well, that's how most experts are. <laughs> Especially in wine, right? Yeah. Um, how'd you get into wine? So this brings us back towards my college days at NYU. And, and as was as now immensely clear, I was uh, deeply studying romantic poetry for most of my time in New York and naturally that just just moved me towards wine right there's this beautiful natural product that was this bottling of the natural world at a certain time and place and i was like you know what this could be interesting i fell in love with this like with the intellectual idea of wine far before i liked the taste of it right so i kind of forced myself to <laughs> to acquire this taste for wine um and yeah, you know, living in New York City, uh, I was out at restaurants all the time, wine bars all the time, talking to sommeliers, talking to chefs. I was devouring every book on wine that I could find. Um, and the funny thing is, dude, most of my career decisions have been based in where can I work with, drink, or be involved with wine. So it got me to the hotel business. So speaking of the hotel business, that's where you decided to go after college. Uh, yep. no more, there's no more natural segue than from English poetry to running a hotel. 
Um, <laughs> so you worked for the Four Seasons, and we talked about how they sent you to Moscow. Uh, where else did they send you? So, so before Four Seasons, I actually worked for for Equinox Hotel. So Equinox, the fitness brand, uh, the high end gyms, they were doing a starting a luxury hotel line. So when I was in college, I got coffee with somebody at Equinox and said, Hey, here's what I'm thinking about my career. I love wine. I think I want to give like food and beverage a try, maybe give like the wine business a try. And he was like, Hey, we're building this hotel brand. We are uh, in need of hands and, and brains. Do you have like 40 hours a week? You can start with this. And I was like, 40 hours a week. I'm in school full time. Right. So I, I pushed all my classes to the evening. Uh, came on, I was, I was, it was a, like a very capricious yes. I was like, yeah, absolutely. Jumped right on it, moved my classes tonight, worked full-time at Equinox, finished out my degree, uh, fell in love with the hotel business just from the complete chaos and craziness of the lifestyle, right? There's, you have a group of people who are just obsessed with the best of the best in every single detail, right? And uh, that was really inspiring to me. So did that, I briefly worked at a hotel in Italy. So I lived in a village in Italy for a bit. Um, I lived in a village with like 19 people. They spoke no English, I spoke no Italian. So we got along really, really well, um, but it was great. In Italy, I focused mostly on building up this hotel's wine program, their beverage program. I did some, made some operational changes. And then from there I was hired at Four Seasons. Uh, I was first in Beverly Hills, which is where I, uh, learned to love the city of Los Angeles, which it would inevitably pull me back to, to USC for my graduate degree. Um, and when I was in, in Beverly Hills, I did a lot of traveling throughout the US. Before we, before we go back to Beverly Hills, yeah, to, yeah. Quote, to quote Pierre Fiss, I want you to stay with this for a second. Let's go, <laughs> back, let's go back to Italy. Because, yeah. So you lived in Italy for how long? Oh, three months. I was only consulting. It was a short stint. Okay. Where in Italy? Well, three months sounds like a, a Sounds like a pretty good amount of time to spend in Italy. You can do a lot in three months in Italy. Yeah. In Italy? So in a very, I worked at a hotel called Monteverdi, which is about 40 minutes outside of the, the next largest town, which is called Montepulciano, which you wine people may know. They make a really wonderful wine called Vino Nobile. Um, uh, so yeah, I lived there, worked there. It was like the middle, it's the middle of the, the Val d'Orcia, which is a like a protected um, site. So all you just look out at beautiful, like bu a bucolic landscape. This is my like one, like capital R romantic uh, poet uh, uh, nature movement in my life. Right? <laughs> I lived in Italy for three months and looked out over vineyards all day long. Um, and I would go for runs every morning through these vineyards and through these like bucolic fields and there's hay bales and you know, those cows and this pristine blue sky. And every single morning without fail, I get back from my run and I'd look out and I was like, this can't be real. This can't really be my life, right? It's, it's so hard to believe that something like that gorgeous and that pristine still exists in, in our crazy, crazy world. Um, but I, I loved living there. Um, I made it a mission to, to visit as many winemakers as possible, hang out in as many vineyards as possible, uh, drink as many wines I'd never heard of. Um, as possible, um, but it was a really awesome time. I think I worked like seven days a week and, you know, 16 hours a day, but it was awesome. And this was all in, this was in Tuscany, right? This is in Tuscany, yeah. So 
On the point of wine, as somebody who, again, this is another subject I know nothing about, along with English poetry, um, did you ever go for the, it, I forget what it's called, it's like sommelier? Is that what sommelier, it's called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sommelier, did you ever do that? I did, yeah, I have the first, when I was at Four Seasons, I got the first level certificate, yeah. How do you get that certificate? What do you got to do? So there's four, there's four tiers. The, there's all these movies about what it's like to achieve the fourth tier, which is a master sommelier, which is complete insanity. And there's obviously there's increasing rigor uh, with each tier, right? The first is like, it's super easy. Uh, it's a wine theory test, right? You taste all these wines, you understand soil composition, you understand terroir and, and how that affects how the wines taste and how to pair wines and so on and so forth. And then as the levels increase, the next one you have to blind taste, right? So you have like, I think it's two reds and two whites or one red and one white. You taste a wine and say, okay, based on what I taste, I would project this wine is uh, a Pinot Noir from the new world, most likely Oregon, my guess on a vintage is 2018. So it's a lot of like deductive reasoning based on how you can taste these wines. So this is what the joke in Napoleon Dynamite is based on where he's tasting milk. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I forgot about that, that is that is an even funnier joke now. <laughs> um, yeah. Sp speaking of movies, what is your opinion of the movie Sideways? Oh man, I love it. Yeah, I think it's really funny. I think it's an excellent movie. I actually spend uh, a pretty good amount of time in Santa Barbara Wine Country. I was there uh, last week for a day. Um, so I think it's a really funny movie. Yeah. Do you think it gets wine mostly right? Oh, good question. Um, yeah, there's some like there's some slander against Merlot in that movie that I think is unwarranted. Okay, but <laughs> that's not a popular opinion in the wine world. We did um, somewhere along the line. I think it was in Carl Voigt's class. We did a case on the global wine industry, and I think that's where I saw that the movie Sideways actually substantially affected sales of Merlot. Oh really? That's so people funny. actually stopped buying Merlot. They were like, "I can't, I can't drink Merlot. It's they trash it in sideways. I can't drink this. I can't be seen by my friends drinking this." That's so funny. Hey, you know, people, wine consumers are impressionable people. Let me tell you. There you go. Um, so you're you're pro Merlot. You we, you think Merlot is like deserving of being rejuvenated here? Yeah, man. I think that like the Merlot slander is pretty unwarranted. There's a lot of like. Like in Bordeaux, for instance, which is a super famous wine region, some of the greatest, most expensive wines in the world are 90, 95% Merlot. Okay. So like okay. there's some really beautiful wine just because it says Bordeaux. <laughs> we just don't know it has Merlot in it, right? Um, so Merlot can be a really gorgeous wine. Yeah. So explain that to me. Because again, I, I know basically nothing about wine. Uh, they're mixing different kinds of wine or Merlot is a base for some other process. How would you, how would you do that? Hmm. So Merlot is a grape. So, so it is different all over the world. Um, and in the old world, like Europe, um, particularly you have wines that are named after the regions, right? You have like Bordeaux and a Bordeaux is a blend of um, different grapes right? And they'll, they'll ferment the grapes independently, then they'll blend the wines, and then they'll sell the wine as Bordeaux. Um, and that's all controlled by the government. There's regulations as to what grapes you can grow where and how the blend should be. And if you want to be able to call it Bordeaux, it has to check all these boxes, right? The Europeans, they love their checklists. They love their processes. Um, 
in America, we we tend to just sell the grape the, the wine based on the grape that it is, right? So like Cabernet Sauvignon, you can buy from Napa, um, which is just the name of the grape. Just the name of the grape. Okay. Um, where do you buy your wine? Uh, where does a, a connoisseur go to buy wine? Do you go to beverages and more like everybody else, or do you have more specialized process for getting the good stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I want to I wanna kill this rumor from the beginning. I am no connoisseur, but okay. I, <laughs> I, I played one in hotels for years. Um, so in L.A., in L.A., there's a spot in West L.A. called Wine House. And it's essentially a huge, it's a massive warehouse, right? And it's, it's like deceivingly industrial looking. You go inside and it's the greatest selection of wine I've, I've ever seen in LA. Um, and the guys who buy their wine, they have like, they have region specific buyers, Italian buyer, French buyer, champagne buyer, right? They have all these different buyers specialized in whatever they do. And they fly all over the world and they meet winemakers, they go to all the wine events and they source their wine that way. Um, so it's an amazing selection of wine, uh, a great variety price points. Um, it's funny when I, so during, during quarantine, I flew back from the Middle East, um, was living in Philadelphia where I grew up and I would call the Italian buyer from uh, Winehouse, his name is Lance. And I would call him once every two months, three months. And I'd say, hey Lance, I need a new case of Italian reds. I'm looking for these styles, these price points. Can you send it to Philadelphia? And like, you know, there are tons of wine shops in Philly, but I refuse to like abandon uh, Winehouse as my primary uh, uh, wine shop. There you go. And, and that's in LA? It's in West LA, yeah. All right. Well, we know our classmates enjoy wine. So that's a, that's a good tip for them to find a place where they can go get some decent stuff. Yeah. Uh, and after working in Italy, you came back to LA, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, you didn't come back to LA. You came to LA because really you never lived. Yeah. Okay. No, you know, I, I had, I visited LA once when I was an undergrad for like a weekend and I toured USC in 10th grade, right? When I was looking at undergrad universities. So those are my only two reference points for Los Angeles, but I, I, Four Seasons offered me a job in Beverly Hills at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, which is um, an iconic hotel right on Rodeo Drive. Um, in food and beverage management. So I jumped on it right away. Um, and I was there for about a year and a half and it was a totally crazy experience. Why? What was crazy about it? Yeah, so it's a 400 room hotel, which is big by luxury hotel standards. There were 900 employees, a hundred of us were managers, right? So I was, you know, despite short experiences at Equinox and Monteverdi and in Tuscany. Um, I was essentially fresh out of school, right? And I was given a team of 50 people that reported to me, right? Who were in food and beverage operations, working in the restaurant, working in room dining, working around the hotel. Um, and man, what, what do I know about management and leadership, right? I, I've right. worked in two very small operations. So it was, it was trial by fire. It was, it was like, they threw you in the deep end, right? You right. had to like, hope you could figure out how to swim. So it, it took some, I almost drowned there. It took, took, uh, took a little bit to figure out how to lead a team. Um, 
of people who have been working at the hotel longer than I've been alive, right? It's heavily unionized hotel. There's a lot of like rigidity and regulation that comes with that. And learning that at 23, essentially fresh out of a degree in romantic poetry is, uh, it was pretty tricky. Ended up getting the, the hang of it. Um, had a really great team of people around me, a great boss, um, made some really good friends in the restaurant scene who are chefs in, in LA um, and had a really awesome time here. You know, it, it, it's funny moving from New York. When I was, when I was leaving New York City, I was like, I was like, there's no place in this world with a better, like more robust restaurant scene than New York. And I, I maintained that for the first few months in LA. And then I started going out most nights for dinner, like I was out to eat like four or five, six nights a week with friends yeah. who were chefs at their restaurants and at friends' wine bars and whatever. Um, and I was like, I don't know, man, this, this could be, <laughs> this could rival New York for just qu sheer quality of, of, of restaurants. It's a, it's a wonderful food city. It, it's a really wonderful food city. When I was living here the first time, I uh, was reading all of Jonathan Gold's previous reviews. And he was, of course, he was the, the food critic for the LA Times for the longest time, passed away in 2018 um, or 2019, but recently. Um, and he's the only person who have won a Pulitzer Prize for food criticism, right? Brilliant writer, had this knack of showcasing a side of LA that was just so un, un, unpretentious, un, unstuffy. Um, I mean, he would publish these lists of 101 best restaurants in the city and he would include taco trucks alongside fine dining tasting menu restaurants. And that's a uniquely Angelino approach to dining, um, which I fell in love with. I was at taco trucks all the time, right? I was obsessed with uh, the diversity of, of restaurants here. Um, it's just such an inspiring place to eat. Have you seen the documentary about Jonathan Gold? City of Gold? Yeah, it's excellent. It's, it's heartbreaking at the same time too. Yeah. Right? Because his, his passion for this city is just effusive. It's like painfully effusive yeah. to know that it ended so early. Yeah. But it's a great movie and people should watch it. And he's written a bunch of stuff that you can, you can literally go back and use the stuff that he wrote before he passed away as a guide of how to eat in this city. Um, mm -hmm. Have you been to Langer's yet, by the way? You know what? I haven't. And uh, Get out there. It's, it's worth I, it. I know, I know, I know. I, I have the same problem with LA restaurants as I do with the books on my bookshelf is I keep adding them to my list. Yeah. Right? And there's just not enough meals in my lifetime to, I know. <laughs> to accomplish them all. Yeah. And, um, and our campus is like right in the middle of the only, <laughs> the only food desert in the city, the only place that it's hard to get a decent meal. Although that being said, have you been to um, Chichen Itza and Whole Box? No. It's in Mercado uh, De La Paloma. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, but it's only a few blocks from campus. It's like a five minute walk. Um, Chichen Itza is, is Mexican. They're both Mexican. Um, Whole Box leans more um, uh, seafood. Uh, and I think leans towards raw preparation of seafood, um, but it's really, really excellent. Um, both are excellent. Um, both are on Jonathan Gold's lists, and you can walk there from USC. All right. Maybe you may be saving my culinary life here at USC. Yeah, you know what? I'm glad I came into your life to save it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then it's off to the Four Seasons in Dubai, right? That's the next stop? 
Yeah, that was a crazy thing. So I, I had been in LA for a little over a year and a half. Um, loved LA. I was in this weird space where I was so comfortable in LA. I had so many friends. I was always out at restaurants. I, I really loved the scene and felt like I really had a place in that scene. Um, and at the same time, I had to look at my life and think there are a few other times that I have an opportunity to live elsewhere in the world, right? With no strings attached. At the time I was totally single. I owned no property. I didn't have a car. So I was like, this is the time that I should, I should go do something totally different and experience the world. So I, um, spoke to some people for seasons about moving abroad. My first thought was, was Europe because every young hotelier wants to say that they're, you know, they're French trained. They've, they've worked in, in Italy, they've worked in Paris, whatever, right. Or London. So, so I, I, I gave my, my top few European markets, none of those worked out. And out of nowhere, I got an email from the general manager of the Four Seasons in Dubai. He's like, hey, I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to have a conversation about your coming to work with us in Dubai. And I was like, Dubai? <laughs> it's not, that's not Europe, right? Um, and we had a quick call. He was uh, Italian, uh, incredibly accomplished hotelier, lovely guy, totally sold me on the opportunity of moving to the Middle East. Um, and I did, I signed. I had never visited. I knew nothing beyond our conversation and a few quick Google searches. But I was like, there's there are a few times in my life where I can up and leave and go live somewhere like Dubai. Yeah. And what was it like to live in Dubai? So, you know, it's funny. The only time I've been in the Middle East was like a layover in Qatar um, for like two hours, right? Or four hours. So I knew I I I had no reference point. I knew I I knew. I didn't know what to expect at all. Um, living there was fantastic, man. Living there was amazing. Um, it's this, it's this incredibly beautiful and sophisticated and intriguing place. Um, I, I, I fell in love with it immediately. Um, and I was fortunate enough in my role with Four Seasons um, to travel every week. Um, so I was working on projects for hotels throughout the Europe, Middle East and Africa region. Um, and I had some free time where I could travel um, personally, but man, I, I got to places, I, I, I was in Kuwait and Bahrain and Oman and Lebanon and India and Hungary and, and Abu Dhabi. And I mean, I, 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 I've been to places that I, will, I may never ever get back to in my life. Um, and I was obsessed with, in a very like Bordanian sense, obsessed with eating on the street, going to the best restaurants, going to the coolest art galleries, walking where you're not supposed to walk to really get the, the best flavor of, of these places. Um, and it was amazing, man. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I, I flew to Beirut during um, their most recent revolution. And I was a little a little nervous, right? Cause all the press in Dubai and the American press, like on the front page of the New York Times, I already, I already booked my, uh, my, my flights and, and I was gonna stay at the Four Seasons there and have a few coffee chats lined up. And then the front pages of the paper, we're talking about all the civil unrest and the danger and violence in Beirut. And I was like, oh man, am I making a, a mistake? Like, is this the wrong time to go? Um, I talked to a few friends of mine and a few chefs in Dubai who I was friendly with who were from Beirut, had family in Beirut. 
And they were like, you know what? Like, it's mostly peaceful. It seems to be okay. So you should just give it a go. And I was like, all right, I'm <laughs> going to give it a go, right? Um, so I fly to Beirut. Um, I land in the airport. I hand my passport over. She sees it's a U.S. passport. She's like, does a double take. She's like, why are you here? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I work for Four Seasons Hotels, right? I'm pretty innocent looking. What am I going to, what trouble am I really going to cause, right? Uh, I'm just here to, to see the hotel and have some meetings, whatever. She's like, okay, just put that passport away and don't show anyone. And I was like, all right, so far, so good. Um, but you know what, dude? Uh I spent the weekend there and a few meetings. It was fabulous. And, and I, I walked around the city and was just, and like, yeah, there's protests and there's, there's graffiti and there's, there's, there's like this very like architecturally visible tension in the city. Um, but everything is functioning, right? The city is operable. The restaurants are packed. The wine bars are packed. The meals I had there were awesome, right? Amazing. Right, I popped up some great art galleries. People were wonderful. I uh, I walked to a little cafe and probably a, a neighborhood I should not have walked to as an American, um, and had a great, such a good lunch. And the woman sitting across from me, all, all communal seating in the middle of this restaurant. The woman across from me, um, just she said, "Oh," and she's like, "Oh, have you had you know this dessert? They have it. It's really excellent." I said, "No, but I'll thank you. I'll, I'll try it." And she's like, "Oh, where are you from?" I said, "Oh." Well, I'm, I'm living in Dubai. It's like, oh, well, where are you from? From? I was like, oh, well, I'm from the US. Oh, whereabouts? Oh, I grew up in Philadelphia. Oh, whereabouts? Oh, I grew up in Chestnut Hill. She's like, oh, my, my husband lives in Chestnut Hill. He's, he's a professor at Penn. It's like, I've spent so much time in Chestnut Hill. I'm like, what are the odds that I would find someone with such a connection to my small neighborhood of Philadelphia sitting in a cafe on a Thursday or Friday afternoon in Beirut? And it was amazing. Then. It, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was such a wonderful experience. Uh, uh, all this to say that we, we Americans have this crazy perception of the Middle East. Um, and for the most part, it's completely wrong, right? I've never felt safer in a place in my entire life. Uh, I've never felt more like I don't know, intellectually engaged, culinarily engaged, curious. I, I, I absolutely loved living there. And I think we should all spend time there as Americans and experience the beauty that is there. I've loved my, my trips to the Middle East. I've been to Dubai, I've been to Turkey, I've been to uh, Israel and Egypt. It's, mm -hmm. it's wonderful. I wanna go to Oman. That is the place that is at the top of my list for going to in the Middle East. Oman's gorgeous, Oman's gorgeous and um, People are so friendly there. Yeah. And as like, as like a cantankerous Philadelphian, um, I am like very skeptical about nice strangers, right? <laughs> and people were, everyone's gen like cab drivers would offer me food, offer me drinks, offer me part of their, like when they're eating a bag of nuts, which like some nuts. I was like, what is going on, right? But it is, and people are so wonderful and it's so gorgeous. Yeah. So you put it on top of your list, you should get there as soon as possible. Absolutely. And as you, as you discovered, the Middle East is a big blanket term. The Middle East is as internally diverse as Europe or Asia. I mean, these oh are huge regions with huge divisions from place to place. And you go to Dubai and it's completely different than Beirut, which is completely different than Tel Aviv, which is completely mm -hmm. different than Cairo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
All right, so we're going to play a couple games here. All right. So game number one is a short game. It's a one-question game, but it's a hard question. There was a poll a few years ago asking Americans whether they believed that they could beat various animals in a fight. 15 animals were in the list. I have spun a random number generator to select an animal, and you will tell me if you think you could beat this animal in a fight. So you have spun, or I have spun for you, number 13 out of 15. Animal number 13 is an elephant. Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Well, 92% of Americans agree with you. Only 8% think, I shouldn't say only 8%. A stunning 8% of Americans thought they could beat an elephant in a fight. So, yeah, I want to meet that 8%. I, first of all, I don't think you're going to meet 8% of people who could beat an elephant in a fight. I think you're <laughs> going to meet the 8% of people who are like, they watch the Olympics and they think, I could do that. <laughs> the disillusioned section of America. Yeah, it's just, it's just a flip. It's not so hard. It's just, it's, just, <laughs> it's just skating on ice and spinning five times in the air. It's not so hard. How hard could it be, right? Um, So you can't beat an elephant in a fight, which I think is the correct answer for all of my guests. I have yet to meet a a guest who could have beaten an elephant in a fight, but I guess we'll see. I'm not done doing the show yet. Uh, But what would your strategy be? You're in the MMA ring with the elephant. You're stuck there. You got to give it a go. What is your plan? Oh, man. Um... (laughs) You got to think faster. The elephant is going, yeah it's charging you it's shaking it's it's shaking its trunk it's clearly agitated you got to think faster than this i, I feel like I, you have to you have to get to the eyes somehow you gotta like, like the very okay. vulnerable very vulnerable places but that's tricky they're high up right maybe you like like you know grab the trunk fling yourself up get the eyes and then you beat the elephant maybe maybe it really is that easy that doesn't sound easy i don't know man Grab the trunk and flip yourself up off the trunk. So, so maybe, maybe the elephant's like, you know, you grab the trunk and it's like, no, no, get off me. So he flings you upwards, right? You land on top of the elephant, you poke the eyes, problem solved. It's as good a plan as any. I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> it's, I think it's the best we can do. All right. Uh, next game, we're going to play a little family feud. Mm-hmm. All right, so are you familiar with Family Feud? Can you can I have a refresher, please? Okay. So, and it was interesting. I had um, the first time I played this, it was with an international student who I had on the show, and he literally had no idea what Family Feud was. And I realized, oh, they don't have Family Feud in other countries. <laughs> um, so I, yeah. So here's the explanation of Family Feud. Uh, two families are on the game show. They compete against each other, which is why it's called Family Feud. And the question is basically, you've got to guess survey responses. The Family Feud people sent a surveyor to a shopping mall. They asked 100 average Americans for their response to various questions. You have to guess what the 100 people said. And you got three strikes that you can use. So you can get up to three questions wrong. You get the third question wrong, that's it, you're done. Um, But you've got to guess what Americans said was the answer to this question. So it's like, what is your favorite color? We asked 100 Americans what their favorite color is. What, what, what do you say? Uh, blue. And then blue is on the board. Ah, 48 Americans said blue was on the board. All right. So 
you need to just keep going until you either guess everything on the board or you run out of strikes. Got it. Okay. All right. Okay. So Family Feud asked 100 Americans to name a type of insurance. Oh, man. Can you name a type of insurance? Geico. Uh, no, not an insurance company, like a Wait, kind I... of insurance. Oh, okay. Homeowner's insurance. All right. Let's see. Is homeowner's insurance on the board? It's on the board. All right. 10 Americans said homeowner's insurance. All right. These are well-insured 10 Americans. Um, and, auto and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little clue. There's a second cousin of homeowner's insurance. Renter's insurance. Renter's insurance. It's on the board. All right. All right. All right. Uh, all right. Auto insurance. Auto insurance. Number one answer on the board. 28 people said auto insurance. All right. Health insurance. Do we have health insurance? Health insurance is on the board as well. All right. Four for four. All right. All right. Life insurance. Life insurance. Is life insurance on the board? It's on the board. All right. You are trucking along. No problem. All right, man. I'm running out of insurance types, so that's the problem. Well, you still got all your strikes. So you got to, you've, uh, you've done a lot of trips around the world. Oh, oh yeah, travel insurance. There we go. I got a little, little. I can help you with a little clue every day. Yeah, now and yeah, then. yeah. You know, I what? don't have any. I don't have any problem with that. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so by the way, mm -hmm. because you you can't visually see the board, there were eight responses on the board. Okay. You now have six of them covered: car insurance, health insurance, life insurance, homeowners insurance, renters insurance, and travel insurance. There are two answers left on the board. They are the sixth and eighth most popular answers in the survey of 100 Americans. And you still have all your strikes. Um, I think living in Los Angeles, you certainly would have no need for the type of insurance that is at number six. Uh, must be uh, hurricane insurance, flood insurance. Hurricane or flood insurance, let's see. You got it. All right. You're right. seven for seven with no strikes. All right. But uh, just so you know, you might need some of those strikes here for this eighth answer because, and for those counting at home, 28 people said car insurance, 22 dental, health or dental insurance, 15 life insurance, 10 homeowners insurance, eight said renter's insurance, six said flood insurance, four said travel insurance. So this eighth answer on the board had two people say, this is a type of insurance. And you may need your strikes here to get this one. In fact, you may need all your strikes to get this one. Because <laughs> when I reveal to you what the eighth thing is, you are probably just going to say, if 100 Americans say this, I'm moving back to Italy. I'm done. Ooh. Uh... Can't do it. In that case, uh, gun insurance? Is it gun insurance? I actually like that answer. Let's see, gun insurance. It feels uniquely American, doesn't it? Oh, it is not gun insurance. I'm trying to think of the, the, the things that would drive me out of this country. 
the proliferation, further proliferation of guns would be one of those things. Okay. Um, huh. I think we're, I think we're on our way. <laughs> there's, there's no limit to the, the American appetite for firearms. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, boaters insurance. Boaters insurance. Okay. Boaters insurance. That makes sense to me. You would want to insure your boat. Boats can get expensive. It's not on here. All right. And we're down to our last strike. I, I don't know, man. Airplane insurance. Airplane insurance. Okay. Airplane insurance, sort of akin to auto and boat insurance. You've got a vehicle, you got to insure it. Let's see. Airplane insurance. not airplane insurance. Oh, man. All right. I want to make absolutely clear. <laughs> this is not one person said this. Two people, two separate people of their own volition said when asked to name a type of insurance. And I want to also be clear. The structure of the survey is literally name a type of insurance and you name one type of insurance, and that's your answer in the survey of 100 Americans. You don't get to name five. This wasn't their fifth choice, their 10th choice. This was for two out of 100 people. The first thing that came to their mind, blackjack insurance. Oh, <laughs> what? I, I, I never would have gotten there. No, this is why I say, you may hear this survey and you're just like, I'm going back to Italy. All hope is lost. You. Can't do this with you. <laughs> I, I mean, I picked this one in honor of the Vegas trip. It's more Vegas theme. Uh, another chance for me to plug the Vegas trip. But I think they're, they probably did a, a survey in a shopping mall in Vegas. And there were people wandering around having lost juniors college money. <laughs> Man, sure could have used some blackjack insurance. That's so funny. <laughs> well all's well in america it seems what do you think an insurance company would charge for blackjack insurance a lot so, hold on a lot let me let me just google this is there such a thing as blackjack insurance there is such a thing as blackjack insurance what is insurance in blackjack what it is how it works when to take it find out when blackjack insurance bet. So it's a type of bet you make at the table. What is insurance in blackjack? Blackjack insurance is a side bet offered to the player if the dealer's up card is an ace as insurance against the dealer's hand being blackjack. Okay. So it's like a derivative bet you make on your game of blackjack when the dealer shows an ace. Yeah, we can call that insurance, right? Two Americans did. <laughs> uh, this, this survey also doubles as an excellent survey of how many Americans have a gambling addiction. Because <laughs> the kind of person who names blackjack insurance before auto or homeowners insurance, like surveying 100 people, Name a type of insurance, car. Name a type of insurance, car. Name a type of insurance, car. Name a type of insurance, gambling. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I have a phone number for you. <laughs> you might need some help. Um, all right. So having almost one family feud. Oh, so close. Let's talk about uh, the time you spent as a volunteer at music festivals. You, you mm. love food, you love wine, you love music, and you've, you've done some work in this area. Tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this. Yeah, yeah. So, so I grew up in Philly, as I mentioned. Uh, there's a great public radio station in Philly called WXBN, and they put on these great music festivals every summer. Um, and I fell into it when I was still in high school, helping out at festivals, at this, at this annual festival. Um, totally loved it um, and kept doing it for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years. Every year I was helping at the festival, I was volunteering. This translated into other festivals. I spent some time on the Vans Warp Tour. I worked uh, for some other big concerts and festivals. And I just love being around people who love music. Excellent. What kind of work did you do? Mm, a lot of it was production related. A lot of it was making sure uh, things were set up where they had to be, when they had to be, so the artists could get on stage and play. So it was physical production mostly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you know what? It was typically in the summer. It was great to be outside. Sun was shining. These were all outdoor festivals. It was a ton of fun. So how does the, were you in charge of, or were you, in fact, basically a roadie? Is that what this job is? Or is that something different? It's technically different. I mean, probably did the same work, right? I mean, I was like, you know, 18 or 19, just moving stuff around. Um, uh, no, I was not a roadie. <laughs> what, is, what is the difference between what you did and a roadie? So a roadie travels with the band, right? So they'll have a, they'll have a, a team of people who get off this bus and in every new city, they, they know the, they know the protocol, they know where everything has to be, they set up, they sound check, and then the artist walks on stage and the roadies break it down, put it back in the bus and they drive away to the next city. So it's more and like I, the roadies are setting up the artist's gear from show to show and you're right. more setting up the physical venue, the stage, the seating, the overall, the lighting, all of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're managing the guys who are doing that work and probably doing some of the work yourself. I did some of it, but yeah, I, I did a lot of like helping guide teams and lead teams to make sure all the stuff was set up. And, and you know what, it was, it was a really fun way to spend summers, right? We were outside from 8 a.m. until 2 a.m. listening to live music, laughing and having a great time. Um, people in, in our classes, WhatsApp are trying to buy and sell their Coachella tickets. Have you ever been to Coachella? I've not. Any I've interest not. in going? Uh, maybe. I mean, I guess it's kind of the California, the Southern California thing for music festivals. So it's a, yeah. in LA love to go out there. So. Have you been? I've not, I've not. But you I, like, you like, like music festivals. So I figured you might be interested. Yeah, 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 that's true. You don't I'd like to go excited. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I don't need that. <laughs> I have this like slideshow in my head of what I think a Coachella attendee uh, acts like. Yeah. <laughs> which gives me pause. Yeah, um, just like, nah. And like, maybe nah. not totally my scene, but I, I should experience it at some point, right? Uh, doing shrooms in 400 degree weather and having Kanye cancel on you? No, thanks. Yeah, not really my scene. Okay. Well, I thought I'd ask. 
know, if you like the music, you might be able to put up with the uh, the other antics that are going on. I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. That's all give and take. Yeah, it sounds like there are other festivals that are more your style. Yeah, that's right. It's like, yeah, I, I'm fine, John. You don't have to sell me on Coachella, but <laughs> you have also never been to. So yeah, yeah, I see. <laughs> yeah, I'll go when you go, John. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. So speaking of, uh, of things that may or may not happen in the future, when you graduate from business school, what's next for you? Is it back to the hotel business? Is it the music business? Is it something completely different? What are you looking at doing next? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm actually thinking about the wine business. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, look, I, I loved hotels. Uh, business school was a very circumstantial decision for me that the industry completely imploded, um, gave me a second to think about my career trajectory and my work-life balance and, and decided to pivot um, into a more strategic uh, thing. So post MBA, the wine business is super uh, appealing to me, whether it's owning my own label or, or working for a much larger label. Um, but it could be a really interesting way to, to, to channel my passions into a strategic role within business. Do you know where you would want to do that? Hmm. I have like a region of the world. Do you want to go to an emerging region? Do you want to do it here in California? Yeah. So, so I have this thing for emerging regions. Um, uh, one of those is the Finger Lakes region of New York which is super, uh, one of the best like Riesling producing areas in the United States. Um, pretty under the radar as far as like mass consumption of wine goes. It's getting like bigger in like the wine nerd community, which by the way, a very small community. Um, <laughs> shocking, right? Uh, so an off the beaten path region like that would be totally up my alley. Excellent. All right, so you're, you're mostly oriented towards the growing and producing more than maybe distributing? Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I haven't put much thought in distributing. It seems like of all the roles in the wine uh, value chain, <laughs> it'd be the most boring, right? Um, and the, less in, the, 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 the least in touch with the actual art form. So growing and producing- well, well, maybe, right? Maybe because you would think you're doing a lot of logistics, but if you're, actually making the wine, you're a farmer, effectively. You're a very high level farmer who's farming yeah, specialized yeah. Yeah, product. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you're probably making a lot of one thing. And then in distribution, you're buying everything because people want every kind of wine. So then yeah. you're like the expert on every other brand because you've got to deliver the next thing that people don't even know about yet. That's true. That, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and let's be very clear, I, I am not, a winemaker, right? I am not a farmer. Um, I would love to own uh, a label on a property and, and create wine. That's one of my, one of my dream jobs. One of my dream dreams in life is to own um, a great vineyard and just write some pieces for the New Yorker. When I'm yeah. not wine, yeah. right? Um, so another area of the business I'm really curious about is importing, right? Okay. There's, there's a few, uh, I, I, and this is a very nerdy thing to do, is I, I often buy wine by importer if i don't know the producer because there's so many producers in the world right um i often buy the wine by importer the importer stickers in the back of the label um 
And I usually trust certain importers to, to buy things that I would like. So I, I love that idea to your point earlier of like intellectually engaging with all these different styles of wine, different regions of wine, importing them, putting them into the market. Um, so that can be really fun too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is the, the importing part, um, I've never, I mean, I buy stuff from overseas and then they just ship it. And for me, the consumer, the only difference is it's DHL instead of UPS that brings it to my house. Yeah. Is there, what is involved in importing a wine? Do you have to go through tariffs? Do you have to go through quality controls? Are we, are we doing protectionism in the wine area that makes it a hard thing to do that you need these importers to navigate it? Yeah, 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 you do, right? And remember, importers are also your relationship with producers in other countries, right? right? So if I am uh, a US-based distributor, right, and I distribute to, to BevMo or Whole Foods or whatever, right, I, I don't have relationships with small producers in Sicily, right? Why would I, right? right? So importers do do that. Right. And they have the intellectual expertise to, to say, hey, you know what, this producer in Sicily is producing great wines. Let's get X percent of her allocation and import it to the US. Um, so that's really interesting. And, and you're right. I mean, it's an incredibly uh, rigid and rigorous process. There's tariffs, there's customs clearances, like with everything in this in this world. Right. Especially with alcohol. And remember, each state has its own laws as to who can sell what and how much of what type of alcohol you can import and sell in a state. So it's, it's super complex. That part is much less exciting to me, but <laughs> the engagement with, with other, with, um, with, with producers in other parts of the world is super exciting to me. Being the discoverer of the next wine brand. Yeah. Yeah. That Americans don't know about, but it's popular in, in hmm. some part of Europe. That does sure. sound interesting. Do you yeah. know what you're doing over the summer? I don't. I'm still interviewing. I'm interviewing okay. a few small vineyards, which would be fun if that works out. Very cool. Very, yeah. very cool. Um, in California or around the country? Or around uh, the world? In California, in California. So you will probably be in Napa this summer. Uh, Napa or Santa Barbara. You know, I spent a lot of time in Santa Barbara. It's a really awesome wine region. And we are so fortunate uh, in LA to be two and a half hours driving from some like really, really phenomenal vineyards. Yeah. Um, and Paso Robles. Yeah, Paso's cool too. You know what? I'm heading down to, I'm meeting a, a wine friend of mine in, in two weeks now, and we're tasting at vineyards in Temecula down by San Diego. Oh, yes. And apparently, I mean, like shows what I know, right? Apparently it's a really like burgeoning wine scene and there's some great vineyards there. So I'm excited. One of my best friends got married at a vineyard in Temecula. See, I'm, I'm left out of loop once again. Yep. Um, well, we, we watch with interest your future in the wine business. I think your classmates will expect you to give them the heads up on the best new emerging producers. <laughs> uh, if we know one thing about our, our classmates at Marshall, it's that they like to drink. So they may, they may need a Sherpa to guide them through the sophisticated world of wine. And uh, we're sure that uh, you're going to have a great summer wherever you end up. And uh, we, we watch with interest your future career. And we'll see you when you get back to California. Alex Buckholtz, did I do it right again? You did it right again. All right. Two for two. Alex <laughs> Buckholtz, thank you very much for being on the podcast. This was great fun. Uh, all right. I'll see everybody next time. Just
try to be your normal humorous self, okay? The guy you were before the tailspin. Do you remember that guy? People love that guy. And don't forget, your novel is coming out in the fall. Oh, really? How exciting. What's it called? Come here, Moss. Do not sabotage me. If you want to be a Whoa. fucking lightweight, then that's your call. But do not sabotage me. Oh, aye, aye, Captain, you got it. And if they want to drink Merlot, we're drinking Merlot. No, if anybody orders Merlot, I'm leaving. I am not drinking any fucking Merlot! Okay, okay, <laughs> relax, Miles. Jesus, no Merlot. Did you bring your Xanax? Do not drink too much. Can you hear me? I don't want you passing out or going to the dark side. No going to the dark side. Okay. 